Manx Financial Group, or MFG, has subsidiaries offering a suite of financial services to retail and commercial customers in the Isle of Man and the UK. I'm delighted to be joined by the Chief Executive, Douglas Grant. So, Douglas, before we talk about the company, I think it's worth reminding the audience about the uniqueness of the Isle of Man. It's neither part of the UK or the EU. It has its own language, it has its own parliament, the parliament's older than the UK parliament. It raises its own taxes, it passes its own laws, but it's part of the UK for defence, etc. But over the years, there's certainly been a real harmonisation of the legal and financial positions uh, to the UK, which is, I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect. The UK is the Iron Man's biggest partner, so it's never going to deviate far from its biggest market. So that harmonization was always going to happen. And it allows a lot of people such as myself, families, companies to come and go between the Isle of Man and the UK, wherever the work actually is. I mean, there's no advantage, for example, in a UK tax resident putting a deposit in an Isle of Man bank. There's total uh, transparency between the, the Isle of Man and the UK. And the only reason you do it, I suppose, would be if the rate was any better over here than it was in the UK. But when you consider the amount of competition in the UK market, I don't think that would actually be the case. Okay, so I understand the harmonisation and the this the symbiosis between the the island and the UK. So, what does the com company comprise of, and who are its customers? Yeah, we we've got a really simple operating model. I mean, Conister Bank has a Class One deposit taking license on the Isle of Man. So that's the same deposit-taking license, or banking license, as it's called, as uh, HSBC, Barclays, NatWest, etc. So the business model has always been you raise deposits, retail deposits, tend, tend to be fixed-term deposits, um, fixed rate as well. So you raise deposits on the Isle of Man, and you lend them in the Isle of Man. But as you can imagine, 86,000 people on the Isle of Man only need so much credit the opportunity is always going to be in the UK where you've got 65, 66 million. So we raise deposits on the Isle of Man, lend what we can on the island, but most of our lend, in fact, 78% of our lending is actually done in the UK to the SME market. So, and if I, I bore you, just please tell me to stop, Sarah. But what that means is you've got an Isle of Man banking in institution with this really transparent operating model putting its money, lending its money in the UK, but we have no brand in the UK. So if we were to come create a brand to compete with any of the challenger banks, then that would cost me tens of millions of pounds. So the better way, way for me to do that is to go through a distribution market. And in the UK, depending on how you, you pick the market size, there's between two and a half thousand, three and a half thousand non-bank lenders. And it's an amazing number. So all these non-bank lenders need to get their liquidity from somewhere. So we would use our liquidity into them. They fund the ultimate customer, and that that works for us. But it also, let's it also lets you see why we were so keen to get a UK banking license, so that we could start kind of raising UK deposits, spending them in the UK, Ireland deposits, Ireland, and start creating some form of jurisdictional equivalence. Although we'll never get. A pound in Alaman will only be putting the UK will be putting Alaman, but we'll get somewhere better than one hundred percent and zero, which is where we currently stand. And I think it's worth reminding 
sort of potential investors that you in fact only got the authority to accept deposits in the UK in October so just mm -hmm. a month ago was it was it were there regulatory hurdles to overcome was that tough to get that license um to put it into perspective the PRA issue less than three licenses on average annually and there's there's well documented banks far far bigger than us who have spent three or four years and haven't got a license there's other banks which have had to withdraw that application. We already had a banking license in the UK, so we knew we were standing from a strong position. But to actually have the, the so it's a valid occasion, um, to actually have the PRA and the FCA approve your business model, approve you for taking deposits, actually gives you comfort that you've actually got a model which is based on sound economics. So it wasn't particularly difficult. It was um, onerous in terms of manpower and management time, but it wasn't uh, overly difficult for us to achieve it. I had great support from, um, from my board and also my executive team were really committed to uh, achieving that goal for us. So you mentioned economics there, something that's impacting consumers and banks alike, our interest rates currently at a 15-year high. How is that impacting the group's margins? <clears throat> we we made a decision early on. Obviously, we didn't know it was going to be 14 rate hikes in a row, but we made a decision early on that we'd pass the interest rate increase on to the deposit customer. Because if you think about it, your deposit customer has been down the next to zero since 2008. So we decided to pass that on, and that meant we'd have a contraction in our margin. But that's fine, it was part of that decision, but try to increase rates where the market would allow us to increase rates. But we are so small, I mean, a balance sheet of half a billion, it's not even half point, point four or a billion. You're not influencing the market, you're a follower rather than a leader. So you've got to trade on the customer experience, it could be on technology, it could be on pure relationships. So you never want to trade on price anyway. So the, the truth is we had a contraction in a margin in the first half of the year, and we'll see that going through the second half of the year as well. And I would imagine each one next year will be even tougher for, for the individuals. But what we're now seeing, if you look at the Q3 results of the clearing banks, they've all had contraction or margins coming through. So they were slow in passing the benefit on to um, the deposit customer, but that was also noted by the FCA PRA because they actually said, we'll be having a look at this. And the example they used was, um, you weren't slow in increasing your mortgage rates when the, when the interest rates went up, but you've been a lot slower in increasing your deposit rates. So I think if you want to be in the, in the sectors for the, long, for the long term and you want to have a reputation which is positive, then I think you've got to treat customers fairly and actually pass these increases on as and when they come due. So bearing in mind, you only got the UK license for Conister Bank in October. Mm. We obviously can't factor them in to the most recent numbers, but what were the most recent numbers like from the group? Well, the, ha the happier numbers were really positive. We, we advanced 182.6 million, which was what's two thirds of 65% more than the same period last year. 
So despite the difficult market, the cost of living market, we were still operating in sectors which we 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 only operate in sectors which are proven proven to be resilient to both COVID and recessions. And we made a conscious effort back in Q4 2019 to move our portfolio into those sectors because what we could see was that with Boris Johnson being elected as Prime Minister, Brexit was definitely going to happen. And all we could foresee was a recession. So luck played its part as well because COVID obviously happened in well, March, February, March 2020, but we'd already moved the lending into those safer sectors. So we're now getting the rewards for that. So our loan book in the half year grew by 40%. Balance sheet grew by a third, which is great. Um, profit before tax was a record for the half year at, at three million pounds. That was up 29%. And the return on equity was 17.1. So with a really good first half, despite a fair number of economic headwinds, which to be fair, it wasn't just us that was facing them. The, the whole world, whether it was well, the whole of the UK was certainly facing as well, whether it was a war in Ukraine, whether it was a cost of living crisis, uh, whether it was fuel costs, or whether it was rampant inflation. What would happen to your group if there was a political regime change from Conservatives to a Labour administration? Have you started factoring that in? Well, we are looking at that because, as you correctly state, that is a, a very likely outcome if we were to put scenarios through to whenever the election is, that's going to be due before, was it January, February 2025? So our our view is that Labour at this point in time are still saying they're going to be friendly to finance sector and the lobbying that our uh, associations, such as Finance and Lease Association, are doing would actually prove that to be the case. We don't think they've got much wriggle room to change much. And in the UK, we're almost exclusively financing SMEs. And I think SMEs, I mean, it's a well quoted a bit lifeblood of the UK, whatever, but I, sus I suspect there'll be a heck of a lot of SMEs are Labour, are Labour supporters. Um, so I don't believe there'll be much change. Corporation tax um, has to be. I, I'm not sure about this last um, budget as to was it laden with um, sweetness for the for the election? Is it going to be sooner than other people think? But I, I just think the tax regime is not going to change much, whether it's Labour or Conservatives within power in a year and a half's time. So do you anticipate a change in your dividend policy? How likely is it that you'll be paying dividends in perpetuity? Well, you can't promise that. But um, we have, our commitment is 10%, uh, and it's in the script dividends of some taking cash, some taking shares. Um, and we are pleased to return to paying a dividend, I think it was three years ago. So our, all our numbers at the moment show that we will still be paying dividends going forward. So taking the current economic environment into consideration, is it advantageous to the company's acquisition strategy? We, we've, got, we've got three ways of growing this business. We've got organic growth and through a structured finance business, we've got um, 
a lot of distribution opportunities, which we're just taking our time and onboarding them safely. And structured finance um, is a great product for us to <clears throat> grow through because it gives us a second layer of insulation against credit loss. So in this kind of environment, that's a good product for us. The second way of growing is through acquisition. We've got a handful of acquisitions, which I would term as being green. They've got the characteristics of businesses that we would like. And um, I think our executive chairman, Jim Mellon, has already spoken about that historically, that what we are keen on <clears throat> is gaining greater market share in sectors we're already in um, and actually owning the customers. So that's really our strategy. The, 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 the sectors we are in, the, I think it's 15.7 billion is the opportunity and our market share is less than 2%. So there's a great amount of headroom for us to grow. And the third opportunity or the third way that we grow is through um, back in management teams. We've got uh, almost like an incubator kind of series and we've done this with various businesses in the past. We grew an FX business from zero. It makes a million pound a year for us basically year in, year out. We, I, met, I met two great guys who wanted to start up a fermentation tank leasing business in the UK to craft breweries. I mean, it sounds incredibly niche. So we went from zero to being the biggest lessor of these vessels in the UK. I mean, it's a great business. Um, the management team's really strong in there, but we started that from zero. But what those actually indicate, and we're part of another one, the British Lending Exchange, they're in subprime lending. We have no exposure to subprime lending. That's their bag. They know it really well. So they get on and do that. And so the likes of Ninkasi and the British, uh, the Business Lending Exchange, what we did there was we looked at it and said, well, look, this is day one. We take the risk greater than um, putting debt in the business. So we'd like some equity and options to acquire more equity. And in most, well, in both of those cases, the management team that was starting the business were starting to, to grow and then sell. But as for us, we didn't want to sell it because if we're putting liquidity lines into these businesses of about seven, eight million pounds, the last thing I need personally as the CEO is to get them seven or eight million pounds back. I'd rather it was lending there on an interest. So gaining, gaining access to ownership of these businesses is a really strong USP for us. So we actually treat that, it's almost like a, a private equity play with some debt put in there, whereas we provide both equity and debt. You mentioned green earlier on. I'm just wondering how you are future-proofing the business in terms of tech and climate change, because I can see that you'd spent millions on your IT investment program. I'm wondering if there's the alignment between um, that expenditure and investment and your ambitions to be green and standard bearers of climate change? I mean, I think we're all fully aware there's a climate disaster basically on the horizon and it would be foolish for any of us not to try and help and anything we can do, we will. I mean, on the island, we're the primary funder to agriculture, fisheries, etc. And that's a space we're really comfortable in. So, I mean, we finance everything from livestock, fertilizer, seeds, secondhand cars, training courses, whatever uh, to deal with that whole sector. 
Uh, and in the UK, that's a great opportunity for us as well. There's not too many players in the UK in that sector. And I'm, I'm, and I'm not trying to encourage other people to enter that sector, but I, I think it's actually um, one that has a great deal of longevity as well as serving your ESG. But for us, it's not about finding a sector and, and then being able to tick an ESG box. That should happen naturally for us. Um, the opportunities that we're looking for will come that way, whether it's wind farm, solar panels, etc. But some of these deals, as you can imagine, a wind farm is a, a huge expenditure and it would be too chunky for us to take on to our balance sheet. So we'd happily be involved as either the lead in a syndicate or part of a syndicate to fund those projects. So you've mentioned we and the board. So how would you describe the makeup of the board and management, how diverse is the components that make up the board? Mm. Well, we start at the beginning. The company split between male and females, 51 and 49%. My management team's 50-50. When we get to the board, we've got the crisis that you'd always have, and our, our NEDs actually reflect the demographic of the Isle of Man and the the number of female NEDs on the Isle of Man is incredibly thin. So we are actively having to make a positive discrimination to encourage that level of diversity. Um, and, and if you look at diversity in terms of ethnic origin, then we have far greater diversity on that basis than what the Isle of Man census, for example, would suggest. So it's, fun. A, it's an evolution. I think it's like everyone said, it's, it's very much an evolution. You, you know what you want to get to, and you know how you're going to get there. It's just trying to shorten that time scale to get there. Because let's be honest, why has this business got a bald middle-aged CEO that's white European? I mean, it's, it's, it's a caricature almost. Possibly because you were the best man for the job, and I'm quite sure that the, um, the board... Um, wouldn't have appointed you otherwise. Um, so at a glance, what is it that Manx Financial Group um, offers everybody? So we've we've spoken about Conister Bank, but what else makes up your group? I think what, what makes us different and what make, what allows us to post stable earnings is <clears throat> with a, a diversified financial services group. And I always try and explain it sons of musicians are trying to explain it from his angle, but you've got a recording board or a soundboard. You can't have all the faders up at 10. Some will be up, some will be down, some will be in the middle. And that's the beauty of our diversification. If you take the FX business that I mentioned earlier, it's thrived on market turmoil. Currencies fluctuate so much, so it makes a lot of money. We've got an IFA business. It hates turmoil, it loves stability. So the wealth management side, people are, are nervous about where to change their holdings or which holdings they go to. So that faders down at the moment. The FX business faders up. The lending on the Isle of Man, it's up. Um, then Cassie, people like that, British Lending Exchange, they're all um, at different stages between that one and 10 and that fader board. And I think it's that diversification that makes us different. And we've got a very focused strategy. 
And focused is definitely good. Thank you very much indeed. Douglas Grant, Chief Executive Officer of Manx Financial Group. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Nice to meet you. This podcast was brought to you by Master Investor. For more investment and economics analysis, please visit masterinvestor.co.uk.